naively perhaps, but something like Brexit's important, but it pales into comparison into the potential impact of automation on how we work and live in future. Not having enough work. Climate change. Blended finance. AI. Shortages of fresh water. Energy transition. Large-scale social disorder. Antibiotic-resistant diseases. Education. Deployment of private capital for social goods. Quantum computing. Hello and welcome to the Future of Business podcast from Saeed Business School. I'm Emily Barron and each week I host a conversation on a topic that will define the future of business and wider society, speaking to experts from Oxford University, leading business people and entrepreneurs. This week, we're talking about the future of work. Studies have shown that up to 47% of work is at risk of automation. What does this mean for us as individuals, as a society, and how businesses are run in the next 10 to 15 years? To help us look behind the numbers, Today we're speaking to Google Chief Economist Hal Varian and Jonathan Trevor, a professor here at Oxford. First is our conversation with Professor Trevor. We discuss the purpose of work, how we use employment to distribute wealth across society, and who might be the winners and losers in the automation age. Today we are talking about the future of work and it's fantastic to have you with us so thank you very much for joining us. It would be fantastic if we could start off by um, painting a picture as it would be for someone who is is really a lay person in this subject. What does the next 30 to 50 years look like in terms of our working lives? Gosh well I, I think it, it's a great question it's the it's the million dollar or billion dollar trillion dollar question but um, it's not a question that I don't think anyone can really answer with a huge amount of confidence, because in many respects, there are so many unknowns and uncertainties around how work will be structured in the future, how we will work, uh, how we create economic value, how we create social value and actually maintain social justice. And I think in some respects, that's a sign of the times. Um, you know, we, we would have been having a similar conversation at the uh, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, certainly here in Europe, uh, uh, around about the 17th century. Um, but but the, in some sense, it was a simpler environment. The types of technologies we were talking about, or indeed others were talking about and introducing, things like the double action steam engine, which was a transformative piece of technology at that time. That That was relatively slow to be introduced and relatively simple, not to say easy at all. Um, but today, one of the big differences in not really so much uh, our industrial revolution, but rather our information revolution, is that the speed and pace of change has magnified uh, exponentially. If you wanted listeners to ask sort of, you know, a, a few questions, maybe one or two questions that they should be asking of themselves and asking of the people around them, what do you think those key questions that we're missing are? What really is the purpose of work? Right. Um, work, as we understand it, in terms of jobs and careers, is a relatively recent phenomenon. Um, we have only really experienced it in the modern era, which is to say the industrial era. Um, it is something which is, is you know, no more than really 300 years old. Prior to that, there was servitude, serfdom, um, it, there was subsistence, farming, subsistence, living. We just sought to survive. Now we have expectations that more than merely survive, we should thrive. Um, and work plays a huge, um, both practical but 
can I say perhaps also moral um, role in, in, in not just surviving, but thriving uh, as individuals, um, particularly as individuals today, uh, as we see society, I think, becoming progressively more individualistic and some would say more atomized, um, particularly as a result of things like social media uh, and information technology. So for me, uh, the question is really, what, what is the purpose of work? And I think um, that's the ultimate question, but how you answer it needs to be a little bit more nuanced than that. And in particular, what I would like to encourage people to do is to think at multiple levels about this question around the purpose of work. Certainly, it's easiest to answer the question, well, actually not easy, but perhaps simplest to answer the question as individuals. What's the purpose of work in my life? Um, for many individuals, work gives us direction, it gives us focus, it gives us esteem, it gives us connection to others beyond our immediate circle, our families, our friends. It gives us uh, a sense of whether we're doing well or not. There is literally a structure by which we can measure ourselves. We often call that performance management, and sometimes it's absolute, against some sense of objective, or sometimes it's relative, I'm doing better than you, or, or more likely not. But fundamentally, it takes up a lot of our time, um, and it's something that plays a huge role in our lives, not just in terms of generating income to survive, but actually creating a sense of, uh, of self-worth, uh, purpose, personal purpose, that's really important. So that's one level, but then we can take it to a higher level. What is the purpose of work from a societal level? I think certainly in terms of creating economic value and how that is then distributed and shared in a way that's considered equitable, which isn't to say egalitarian, everyone gets the same, but equitable. But I think also organisationally, what is the purpose of work for companies, for employers? Um, again, is it purely around creating economic value, in which case employees are merely a cog in a machine and means to an end? Or, or are we embracing the sense of purpose-driven organisations which see a contribution more than just simply a healthy bottom line? Can you give us a kind of walkthrough of what the organisation of the future, and I, I do want to come to kind of who might be the losers in this situation, and what does it look like when I go to work in 10 or 15 years' time? Do I even go to a place? So I don't like the question. Okay, we can do a different question. No, no, I, I think it's a great question, but I don't like the question because it kind of makes an assumption. And I think this is one of the problems that we have when we try and think about the future. We... we we have in the past, and indeed we are continuing to do so, um, which is dysfunctional. We're not learning from our mistakes. We think about the future as being one future. We think about the future organisation being one type of organisation. And the reality is um, it will be different. Um, it will be different on a, on a case-by-case basis. So what does the organisation of the future look like? Well, I, I've got a clear and simple answer, but you're not going to like it. It depends. That's right? such an Oxford answer. It's such an Oxford <laughs> answer. It also happens to be true, I believe. So there will be some changes that we know that will apply. I think, generally speaking, there will be less security. That's the negative. But on the flip side of that, there'll be more flexibility. I think we will increasingly have fewer dedicated occupations. What we will have is more and more, as a trend, portfolio careers. What we will have less and less of, simply because I believe it will be replaced by machine intelligence in some form or another, is routine work, whether that's manual or even white-collar cognitive work. Um, but what we will have more capacity for is inventive work, creative work, and work that requires discretion. 
discretion, the exercising of judgment, um, all of which are, are things that humans are really great at, respective of background. Everybody can be good at those things. So we know those things, I, I believe them to be true, but what that means for uh, what specific companies or organisations or government agencies look like in future, I, I think it's impossible to say, because actually it's just very dangerous, I think, to start generalising across entire economies or even across entire industries. So, so for me, the urgent question is not to try and predict the future, to kind of say, well, what should we think about the future? It's more how, how should we think about the future? how to think about some of the challenges that we're facing, how to ask the right questions, um, and to build in resilience into our own uh, ability as, as leaders. And I mean that in the broadest sense, uh, not the heroic individual at the top of a hierarchy, but uh, our capacity as human beings to, to think differently about the future and to be resilient and, and to act together to, to make it more positive. Um, because as you say, there are winners and losers and change always, and there always will be. That, that's the urgent requirement for me. Not, not to be, a, a, in some sense, a mystic, but rather to actually just be better at how we think about the future and the choices that we have to make. Do you think, from your perspective in the kind of conversations you have about this, do you think there is enough a sense of urgency in our government agencies, in our big organisations, to start to ask these questions and start to have these conversations? Absolutely not. <laughs> Did I know the answer to that question? Possibly. <laughs> um, absolutely not. I mean, I think for very understandable reasons. We, we focus on the here and now. We focus on fighting problems and fires that are ever present and, 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 and particularly ever now. But the reality is, for me, naively perhaps, but something like Brexit's important, but it pales into comparison into the potential impact of automation on how we work and live in future. Uh, and that's not something which is 50 years from now. That's something that's 15 years from now. And so thinking about those who might lose out, I mean, two studies I've seen. One is sort of the, this figure that gets bandied around a lot, that 47% of tasks will be automated. And then the other, that there's a disproportionate impact potentially on women because they disproportionately take up roles which are, easy to to automate and when we think about um both of those things first of all do those stats still hold up do you think and and secondly sort of how bad can it get sort of what what is the threat and what how do we then think about redistributing wealth in a sort of equitable way to use your your language when those work mechanisms no longer kind of work in some sense to start to even think about those issues it's important to understand how we've come to where we are and, and indeed where are we as i was saying before this idea of careers and occupations and jobs working for an employer engaging in a transaction that is the employment relationship which is literally a contractual relationship um, legally there's perhaps also a psychological relationship as well that's a relatively modern phenomenon and from a societal perspective how we operate as democratic capitalist societies relies upon in large extent precisely that that job structure creating industries in which work is performed laid by labor we've come to rely upon that mechanism as a means of distributing income so the primary means how we share societally certainly in the uk but in the us western europe pretty much across the world it is is how we distribute income is precisely through our employment structures so for me that you know it becomes more than just merely interesting and topical when we are talking about threats to 
precisely that form of structuring the distribution of income. It's not just about jobs. It's about societal cohesion. It's about fairness. It's about stability. It's about how we come together. It's about the even, not just simply the the question of responsibility from the state to its people, but actually how we even think about statehood. Um, what are we if we are not a system as a nation for fairly sharing economic value? And the mechanism of how we do that, again, is employment. So it becomes a really important issue. And I think, generally speaking, you have two camps when you start to think about these really complex issues. You have optimists and you have pessimists. And the optimists would argue, I think, that particularly with regards to disruption from technology, if we look at past experience, technology has created far many more opportunities for economic value creation than it has uh, for people than it has actually uh, replaced. And in particular, they will talk about the 1922 rather critical piece issued by John Maynard Keynes, the Cambridge economist, who, who talked about the threat of technological unemployment. Well, in some respects, Keynes was proved comprehensively wrong um, because, again, from a societal basis, the introduction of then industrial technology, such as um, uh, the, the moving production line, created far more opportunity for jobs than it actually replaced. But he has a point. He has a point. And that's where pessimists come into it. They, they Pessimists, I think, would argue, well, you know, in the absence of employment structures, because we ha- are replacing roles and tasks with particularly routine roles and tasks with uh, uh, technology, um, what do we do? And the future's bleak. And I think some way how you start to think constructively about both and evaluate both is, again, by focusing at multiple levels. And I think if we think at a societal level, I'm an optimist. Um, I am, because I think, again, the introduction of new technologies, either to make existing industry more efficient or to make it simply more innovative, um, particularly the introduction of things like AI, ever more capable technologies will make our companies and our organisations that we rely upon for economic value and just the essential products and services that we, we, we use and consume every day as, as people, it will simply make our organisations more capable and you know that's, that can only be a good thing. So in that, that respect, I'm all for it and I think we should rush to embrace these technologies, understand their, their meaning and the implications and how they're best managed, um, but absolutely it's a positive thing because it's progress. If I think about organisations within that, the winners organization will be those that understand the environment and how it's changing and become adaptive and, and can embrace, for example, those new technologies, but not just technology. There's a whole lot of other things that are changing as well. For example, the introduction of millennials into the workforce and differing expectations of people and their relationship with the work they perform. So absolutely, it's the case that organizations, I think, will, some will survive, others will thrive in the differences uh, quite simply how open-minded they are and how, how effective they are. But where I can become potentially pessimistic is if we come down to the individual level. So not the societal level or even the organisational level, it's the individual level. What do we do if people can't or won't adapt to an environment in which the work that they have perhaps devoted their entire lives towards is no longer uh, abundant or available or even viable? And I think that's where we need to start thinking about some of the implications of this. And um, that's not a hard thing to imagine because we see that already, not not even in our industrial, sorry, in our information revolution, but rather in our industrial revolution. If we think about, for example, steel workers in Sheffield, 
you know, there is a, you know, there is much post-industrial decline in many of our communities that we built up specifically to serve uh, our manufacturing base in the industrial revolution that have not transitioned to a a post-industrial world. So we're going to have that plus many more communities or individuals who haven't in the future managed the transition to a post-information world or a world in which their work is no longer viable. It's technically redundant. So that for me, you know, that that's the big question. How do we help those who can't or won't make that transition, who can't share in the opportunities that these changes, both technological and otherwise, are creating, that I think are inevitable? We can't roll back the tide on that, and we shouldn't, but it does need to be very carefully thought about because the implication is, is, is I think, further inequality, further division, further unrest, which is in nobody's interest. I mean, one thing that it kind of really pushes me towards to ask you, and I, before I came to business school, I used to work for a charity that worked in schools. And when I think about the way our schools are organised and the way our education system is organised, and even the way kind of our universities and, and, and degrees are organised, it doesn't feel like we're ready. <laughs> it doesn't feel like we're preparing people to work in this different way. It requires a different set of skills around leadership, around uh, the way we interact with others, the way we build relationships with others. And it makes me feel quite nervous about who is going to take responsibility for ensuring that everyone is ready. Because there doesn't, it feels like there's a, a void of responsibility between the individual, the state and, and companies. And that kind of contract doesn't seem to have been written yet on sort of, okay, I'm going to put up my hand and I will take responsibility for making sure people are ready. Certainly I feel quite pessimistic when I, when I think about that. I mean, what's certainly true, how we organise governments, how we organise the state, particularly in terms of public services and support, uh, how we organise our universities, how we even organise our business schools, and specifically our MBA, is a direct mirror image of the type of I'm going to say, work society that we create. It is no accident that the Oxford MBA, like every single MBA on the planet, is organised into verticals, right? functional subjects, strategy, marketing, operations, organisational behaviour, finance, because that's how our companies work. And actually it's the same in government. So we are organised industrially, and we've been extremely successful at it. And I, and I really think that's worth noting is we are victims of our own success. And we should celebrate that. But the question is, is that fit for purpose for how we will work in future? And by work, I simply mean find an enduring occupation that invigorates us as individuals, but also the means by which we create value economically and otherwise, societally. Uh, as societies across the world, either as one global society or indeed multiple component constituent nations. And so what that looks like in future, I I, I don't know, and and neither do you. But I think you're right that we need to start asking these questions and asking them urgently. We we need to think long term. We can't think about the next quarter or the next, simply the next year, because that that simply isn't going to uh, help us start to prepare or even be in a position to be open-minded if and when changes does change does come. Um, you know, in, in some sense, I think there is a tension between planning as much as possible and and allowing things to emerge. And, that, and actually, maybe part of the, the challenge of 
the 21st century and the information age and, and the types of changes we're seeing is that actually we've got to do both. And that's really hard. We still, I think, and I, I think this especially for myself, but I see it in, in a lot of other people as well, I certainly see it in terms of our companies uh, that we research uh, here at, at the business school. We, we think in binary terms. We think in black and white. And, and then really, and we do that because that's efficient and it's simple. But the reality is that it, it's incredibly uh, complex and therefore grey in future. And and so then you get into very much a kind of political ideological perspective and nobody wants to hear me talk about that because who am I? But I do think that there is, there will be there um, a, a fight between those that think that the answers will come from heroic individuals or indeed individuals themselves working it out for themselves and in aggregate all of us just hopefully getting along enough mm. for long enough or finding some collective solution. Which isn't to say something which is towards the socialist end of the political spectrum, but finding a collective way through probably some of these collective systemic challenges that we're facing, which are just simply economic or social, that they are every aspect of, of, of what it means to be uh, a citizen in a, in a healthy society. After my conversation with Professor Trevor, we caught up with Google's chief economist, Hal Varian, at the annual Responsible Business Forum where he delivered a keynote address on the topic of AI and its impact on the future of work. Unfortunately, I was unavailable, so two of our producers, Brody and Patrick, dragged him into our studio to have a conversation. Halvarian is an optimist. He believes that machines will step in to fill the labour shortage left by a wave of retiring baby boomers. He also, in the conversation, shared some light on how tech platforms such as Google and YouTube can help bridge the skills gap. My name is Hal Varian. I am uh, the Chief Economist at Google. Welcome to the Oxford Futures Podcast, Professor Varian. It's great to have you here. You were just giving a talk on automation and demographies and how the dynamic works there. and sort of implied that while there might be a lot of pessimism about automation and job loss out there in discussion at the moment, it might actually be a boon and to sort of replace some of the baby boomers are retiring and they might sort of offset each other. Could you just run us through that? Right, so everybody focuses on the demand side for labor, and then uh, if new technology comes along that can displace labor, there could be lots of social disruptions uh, associated with that. Now, what I looked at was what the supply of labor will look like over the next few decades. There's really only one social science that can forecast 10 or 20 years into the future, and that's demography. And there, the patterns are quite clear. If you look at the developing uh, countries, you're seeing aging society. And every time a worker retires, they expect to continue consuming. So the workers that are left behind, that are still working, have to have to be more uh, efficient for that to occur. They have to be more productive. And that effect is really uh, says that we have to invest more in making work more productive. You know, we've grown up in a period, or maybe I've grown up in a period, I should say, when there's been a pretty loose labor market because of all of the baby boomers coming onto the labor market and women entering the labor market. It's typically been possible to find uh, workers. We're moving into a period where labor is going to be substantially more scarce and there's going to be more competition for workers. Overall, that should be a good thing. Pushes wages up, 
and makes it easy to find a job. What we might, what we have to focus on are then these other questions. How can we deliver training more efficiently and how can we uh, assist people in uh, matching up the workers and the, and the jobs? So following on that point about training, automation and computing will play a huge role in retraining people to meet demands of the future workforce. What is Google doing specifically? So we're, we're doing a number of uh, educational and training uh, courses around the U.S. and the world, for that matter. Uh, one thing that I've been particularly interested in is looking at the resources that are available on YouTube because there's just so many diverse sets of education and training videos uh, on YouTube that it's an absolutely remarkable treasure trove of such activities. So if you want to know how to weld, or you want to know how to fix your toilet, or you want to know how to rewire your thermostat, or any of these questions, there it is. Uh, it's available on YouTube. And many, many, many of those educational and training videos are uh, important for learning job-related skills. So are you going to be able to match the that training to sort of the, the supply and demand requirements of the future workforce? So it's like some sort of sorting or allocation things so people know what they need to study or is it well it's an excellent question but let me remind you of Google's business <laughs> we, yeah. we try to do exactly that in yeah. pretty much every domain we're matching people with questions to people with answers people want to buy things to people want to sell things and people want to acquire skills people who can who can provide that training and education so I don't care if it's art if it's music if it's carpentry if it's uh, uh, automotive, we have content there that's going to help people learn to do the things they want to do. In your talk, you talked about automation reducing some of the barriers to previously complex tasks. So yes. GPS means that it's much easier to become a driver. You don't need to know the streets of your city to be a taxi driver. Spell checking reduces the burden of some of the sort of computer-related tasks, for example. So how does that work? Do you see that? developing any further? Is that going to help people get jobs a lot easier? Yes, of course. What's nice is it's a lot easier writing papers than it used to be because you've got all of this assistance in terms of style guides and spelling guides and everything else. It's a lot easier uh, navigating around town because you have these uh, fantastic geo-positioning systems available for free. When I was a kid, believe it or not, we spent a week or so in arithmetic class learning how to take square roots by hand. So that's a pretty obsolete task these days. Do you think there'll be a limit to how low that sort of cognitive threshold will go? How, how much technology can augment people in the work they do? Well, uh, the examples that are really fun now are to use Google Lens. If you take your Google uh, camera and go out and photograph a shrub or a tree or a flower, it will come back with a result that tells you the name of the shrub, the tree, the flower, and what kind of treatment it needs. Water, sun, acid soil, local soil. So all of those things that you used to have to look up in the uh, gardening manual now just come to you immediately via, the, uh, via, the, via your phone. You also have spoken about some of the sort of manual tasks that people assume will be the first to be automated or actually yeah. made up some very complex, numerous tasks that you might need one robot to do each individual mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and taken together with sort of that Google Lens example you just gave, do you think manual roles or sort of cognitive roles would be the, the most at risk to automation? Well, I think that we've seen tremendous advance in machine, lear machine learning, artificial intelligence areas in the last five years, and we haven't really seen a comparable explosion on the robotic side. So let's take something like harvesting crops. Well, we harvest corn, we harvest wheat using mechanical equipment, works just fine. But if you're trying to harvest apples, peaches, plums, pears, strawberries, raspberries, grapes, on and on and on, these soft fruits can be so easily damaged that really they still require a human touch. Now, someday we might lick that problem, but uh, for now at least, it's, it's still a problem. Interesting. So understanding this is, a, we're at a business school, yeah. this is a business podcast, it'd be great to get your take on, first, what do you see as the biggest opportunity for the young professionals coming out of business school, coming out of undergrads with these two looming technology and shortage of labor in developed countries? Mm -hmm. And then alternatively, what's the biggest threat and, and where should we be looking? Well, in the U.S., I would say healthcare is going to be employing more and more people, maybe inefficiently but they'll certainly be performing, uh, they'll be uh, engaging more and more people and there's a lot of challenges there to making our system more efficient. Uh, so I think that's probably a good uh, area for people to go into. But then technology, just the kind of high tech that we see in Silicon Valley is doing tremendous things. Think about the driverless vehicles, autonomous vehicles. Well, that's a trillion dollar a year in industry worldwide and there is intense competition going on among the auto companies and the tech companies to be able to provide uh, services that really work for ordinary users. So that's going to be a very exciting business as well. Excellent, uh, thanks. And then uh, what do you think are the biggest challenges or threats that we face with, with the way trends are going? Yeah, well, a lot, uh, there may be cases where some technological change happens so rapidly that people really find it difficult to adjust to the, uh, to the change. So that could happen in trucking, for example. Lots and lots of truck drivers. Right now there's 50,000 vacant truck driver jobs in the U.S. They can't retain people because it's a terrible job. Salaries are being pushed up to $80,000 to be a long-haul truck driver. That's a pretty good salary. Uh, but it also means that it's even more incentive to try to replace those human truck drivers working in not very good but high-paying positions. Uh, there's a race to see if we could really improve that job by making it um, one more user-friendly, that is making the uh, task less uh, tedious, and uh, two, by making the task cheaper. I think they're going to be slow enough that the labor markets can adapt, but when you ask for the pessimistic view, it could be that something will come on so quickly that it will create a lot of disruption. So the key is, is more timing than it is well, I think phasing things in, and when you look at technology in general, it, it's, it's phased in. You look at, uh, for example, mobile phones. First mobile phone for commercial uses was uh, about $2,000, came out in 1980, and it was the size and shape of a brick. 
<laughs> so things have changed a the, lot. The bag phones. Right? Yes, exactly. Had one in his it, truck. Yeah, so it's changed a lot. Things have changed a lot uh, since then, but then again, it's been you know, nearly 40 years, right? Thank you for listening to the Oxford Future of Business podcast presented by Saeed Business School. Next week, I'm in conversation with Nick Al, Vice President of Virgin Hyperloop One, where we discuss the future of hyperfast transport and what it means for the planet and our cities. Please subscribe on iTunes. And if you want to find out more about what we discussed in today's episode, you can follow the link in the description. The Future of Business podcast was created by Brody Middleton, Patrick Kyler, Michael Ann Butler, Paris Abrol, and Emily Barron, MBA students at Saeed Business School.